-hmm. You don't worry about it unless it's like a one under one under something like that. Here we go. Good afternoon. Welcome to the Council of American Ambassadors program on innovative approaches to diplomacy. I'm Kathleen Sheehan, the Executive Director of the Council.
As many of the people in this audience know very well, the role of the ambassador is to convene, to connect, and to problem solve. Traditionally, that has been done in meeting rooms and reception halls. But in our new era of social media and digital communication and Zoom events, ambassadors have many new tools at their disposal. And these tools present opportunities and challenges. Ambassadors who are skillfully taking advantage of the new methods are able to convene broader groups and connect with more diverse populations and find new ways to solve problems. Today, we have a panel of three esteemed former ambassadors, all of whom were early adopters of these new approaches to diplomacy. And we're looking forward to hearing them share their stories about how they tried to innovate and what obstacles they had to overcome and what they hope to see ambassadors able to do in the future. So first, let me introduce our panelists. First, we have Ambassador Mark Brzezinski, who was the founder and principal of Brzezinski Strategies. He served as U.S. Ambassador to Sweden from 2011 to 2015. During that period, Embassy Stockholm was recognized for spearheading innovative approaches that advanced U.S.-European trade and landed key Swedish investments. His leadership also resulted in new markers being set for commercial development and environmental sustainability in the fragile Arctic. Ambassador Brzezinski received his bachelor's degree from Dartmouth, his JD from the University of Virginia, and a doctorate in political science from Oxford. Next, we have Ambassador John Emerson, who is the vice chairman of Capital Group International. He served as U.S. Ambassador to the Federal Republic of Germany from 2013 to 2017. During that time, he was awarded the State Department Sue Cobb Award for Exemplary Diplomatic Service, which is given to a non-career ambassador who uses private sector leadership skills to make substantive impacts on U.S. diplomacy. He received his bachelor's degree in philosophy from Hamilton College and his JD from the University of Chicago. And we, finally, we have Ambassador Christy Kenny, who is a frequent public speaker on leadership and foreign policy and is a teacher of leadership at Georgetown. She holds the State Department's highest rank of career ambassador. And during the course of her 30 years in the Foreign Service, she represented the United States as ambassador three times. First in Ecuador from 2002 to 2005, next in the Philippines from 2006 to 2009, and finally as ambassador to Thailand from 2011 to 2014. She holds a bachelor's degree from Clemson University and a master's degree from Tulane University, and she also attended the Naval War College. So welcome to all of our panelists. Uh, I think what I'll do first is start with a question for the whole panel, and maybe we'll start with having Ambassador Brzezinski answer it and then um, have everybody else join in. And that is that you've all been involved in foreign policy and international relations for many years. And so I'm curious over the course of your professional lives, how have you seen the role of the US ambassador change? So Ambassador Brzezinski, let's start with you. Thank you, Kathleen. And hello, everyone from Northeast Harbor, Maine. Thank you, Kathleen, for gathering John and Christy and me together. Uh, first of all, I'm very honored to join Christy and John on this panel. When they were ambassadors, I really looked up to them and their innovative approaches and their outreach because it worked. It connected with people to advance the American interest. And I looked to them as role models. What a great topic to bring us together on, innovative, innovative approaches to diplomacy. 
because diplomacy as a practice is an ancient art. And when you're an ambassador overseas, you can practically blink your eyes and think that you're back in the 18th centuries and people are calling you your excellency and this type of thing. And you blink your eyes again and you're at the headquarters of Spotify or Minecraft and seeing the latest innovative designs for connecting with people around the world. And the challenge and the opportunity for diplomats is how to exploit these to advance the American interest and not get bogged down in, in conventional notions of diplomacy that don't work today, to today like they used to work in the past. So three points to respond to your question regarding how has the role of the US ambassador changed. First of all, decision-making overseas, and this really goes to practically every country, decision-making is more diffuse. The role of ambassador is no, longer just, is no longer just to connect with the top five power holders in the country. It's about people and the different demographics and pockets where you find people and decision-making, whether it's entrepreneurs, the youth generation, um, across the board demographically. Um, and in my case, when I went to Sweden, one of the things that my wife and I found was that in certain ways, the current political power holders, the royal family and the Swedish government, weren't connected themselves at all to the new entrepreneurial class, the founders of Skype, of Spotify, of Minecraft, who were having influence everywhere, but the Swedish government wasn't connected or aligned with them. And one of the things we did with the ambassadorial role was use the power to convene to bring, to, to bring them together to great benefit for the American interest, but also for the Swedes. Second, foreign policy during the Cold War was really about keeping things in. After the collapse of the Soviet bloc, diplomacy and foreign policy changed a lot. It was much more about projecting things outward, values, messaging, embracing equality, and that type of thing, and sharing messaging as efficiently as possible. And when I say that, I really mean digitally to reach, to reach large populations increasingly became a new role of an ambassador. Um, and that involves building an ambassador's brand. We can talk more about that um, in a little bit, but that's a key piece of this. Um, and then last, one of the things I found as an ambassador under President Obama is that one really has to think of, of really in any way, shape or form, combating conventional notions of what an ambassador is. The term ambassador and embassy and embassy residence, these are kind of elitist things in the eyes of many people, rightfully or wrongfully, that's how they can be conventionally seen. And it is important to artfully and genuinely get in front of that to let people know that you work for the people, you're working to build this relationship, and this is to advance the common interest in the public interest. Thank you, that's great. Um, whoever wants to go next, feel free. Christy, why don't you go? Sure, I, obviously I endorse everything my friend Mark said, and it's a great pleasure to be with Mark and John, Kathleen, and a lot of familiar non-faces, but I see your names and it's great to have you with us today. Let me just add, I think the role of the ambassador 
has become much more a conductor of an orchestra of U.S. foreign policy in a country. We have many more U.S. government agencies involved and many more parts of the U.S., university to university links. And so the ambassador is no longer as they were 100 or frankly even 25 years ago dealing with a foreign minister you know, in, in thoughtful means, you still have that in your toolkit, absolutely. But you are dealing with a much broader, more sophisticated United States and a much more internationally active, both online and in person. So you're a lot like the conductor of an orchestra and you have, as Mark so eloquently outlined, these new tools. You still have speeches and interviews with radio and TV and one-on-one -on -one negotiations and reception halls. But now you've got this huge array of social media online presence that depending on what country you're in and what situation is at hand, give you a whole nother aspect and another set of tools that can be phenomenally effective. Over to you, um, okay, thanks. And, uh, and again, uh, thanks Kathleen for pulling this together. I, I have to tell you, uh, Mark and Christy and I had so much fun during the preparation of this uh, sort of reconnecting and, uh, and having a chance to share our views and our ideas and our experiences. It was, just, uh, uh, it was just great. And hopefully we can reflect some of that for this panel. And as Christy said, it's so great to see a number of friends uh, out there listening and, and we hope for a robust um, you know, discussion, question and answer period. I'll just say, you know, I, obviously I, I agree very much with what uh, the thoughtful comments that both Mark and Christy made. I love that orchestra conductor metaphor. I guess the only thing I would add is, as in any interpersonal relationship, it's important to meet people where they are. And so some people respond, it's the social media thing, that's how they're going to connect. And clearly, um, you know, it's not just young people, the media often deals that way, maybe, you know, trade associations, things like that. So it's important to have that presence. Uh, but I, I, I think it, 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 there's a potential uh, for uh, a, a, an error here if people rely too much on that and not enough on the absolute interpersonal connections. You know, you, you miss a lot when you can't see the body language in a meeting, for instance, or, or the after the meeting is over, the on the margin conversations that actually help to deepen a relationship or take something that wasn't even on the agenda for the meeting that might be the more important thing and start talking about that. And, um, and I have seen, uh, particularly with some of the current ambassadors, and, and obviously we have a president who is uses Twitter as not just a tool, but, uh, but almost a weapon. Uh, and, and I've, you know, seen this in several places that I pay a fair amount of attention to where the ambassador is tending to rely too much, in my opinion, on social media and not do the traveling around the country, the meeting with different groups of people, with meeting with business leaders, the meeting with, uh, local um, uh, community leaders and elected officials. And I think that's a mistake. So I, to use, again, Mark's um, you know, wonderful uh, listing of all the tools that we have available to us, it is a tool, but it should not become even the primary tool unless with a particular you know, audience that, it, that does make sense to have it be the primary tool. 
And if I can just add into John's, if you don't mind a second, I, I see today too, particularly among, I'm you know, the career person among us, among younger career ambassadors thinking, uh, we got a Twitter account at the embassy and we've got X number of followers, so we're done. And you aren't done. You still have all of the other aspects of diplomacy. I mean, what it's really done is broaden the job of the ambassador and give you more tools. It's not a one-stop shopping, particularly depending on what country you're in and what the situation is. But in general, you're very right. Most, if given a preference, people prefer to see you in person. Mm -hmm. Yeah. You know, I'd love to get some um, uh, follow up on what you said and some more specifics in terms of what were some of the, the methods that you found most effective when you were serving as ambassador in terms of connecting with people? And maybe do, can you give us any specific examples of things you tried that maybe have not been tried before in that in that particular country? I'd be really curious. Um, anybody who can. You know, why don't I start a little bit? Because in the course of my three ambassadorships, sort of social media came online. Mm -hmm. you know? Followed very distinguished people. Again, it's always fortunate when you, the people before you and the people who followed me were all very good. So we had good relationships, easy to keep those. By the time I got to the Philippines, social media was just kind of coming into its own and Filipinos are very social. So it was a great added way to reach out for myself and for the embassy. When I got to Thailand, I found they, um, the elites and media will use Twitter but Thais don't like written stuff. They're all Instagram. It's pictures. <laughs> so myself and the embassy decided we need an Instagram account. Once we learned that Bangkok's Savannapum Airport was the most Instagram place in the world, like, okay, well, what are we missing? <laughs> we need to be part of this party. So it's an example of something. It's no one's fault. It wasn't tried before. It wasn't really around. And we were able to just see, I had a really good public affairs team who was able to say, we're just, we're seeing where people are. And it doesn't mean we shouldn't have a Facebook page and we shouldn't have an embassy Twitter account, but we should really have an Instagram account. Mm -hmm. So I'll leave that one. Mm -hmm. Let me try to answer your question of examples of things that hadn't been tried before in you know, describing it physically and then digitally, because these are two important pieces. First of all, to John's incredibly important point, getting out from behind embassy walls and getting out from the capital to relate with people. Because after all, out of the embassy walls and out of the capital is where most people live. And getting closer to them is a key part of showing that you care about them. And so what I did, for example, is I did a bicycle trip across Sweden. No ambassador from any country, let alone the United States, had bicycled from the water's edge of the west coast of Sweden to the water's edge of the east coast of Sweden. And I'm not a bicyclist, so I didn't even know if I could complete it. And after my first day of this eight day trek, I was a little worried, but I did manage to complete it. And we had this great group. My detachment commander for the Marines came with us. A number of public affairs people, of course, came with us. Uh, my brother-in-law came with us and so forth. And we went to the tiniest little farm towns across Sweden. We saw moose crossing in front of the road in front of us. And we were able to share all of this across the country digitally so that when we arrived in Stockholm, there was practically a small crowd waiting to greet us because it had been shared far and wide to the four corners of the country because Sweden is so connected. Same thing with other things that hadn't been done before. I raised, this has never, been, never done, been done before in Stockholm at the US Embassy. I raised the rainbow flag over the American Embassy 
on Pride Day, I can tell you not everyone embraced me doing that. And I got some um, quiet uh, pushback from certain people. Um, but I did it and it showed that America embraces equality and it was a key message about walking the walk because people knew that not everyone would embrace my doing that. And that in itself has some currency. Uh, all of this to Christie's amazing point about you know, the impact of social media in some countries versus others, and in Sweden it also is a social media centric country. Sharing it digitally was key to building an awesome brand. You know, Henry Kissinger once said, if it's not on television, it didn't happen. <laughs> These days, if it's not on social media, it didn't happen. And you need to artfully manage that. Yeah, I think that's a great point. And, you know, it's interesting. And, uh, you know, the fun part about this conversation is you think about things you haven't thought about for a while. But when we first got to Germany, the whole Facebook, it was mainly Facebook. Twitter was just sort of starting to uh, move. But uh, it, it, our number of followers in Germany were very, very low and very, very low uh, compared to what most Europeans were and what have you. And what I learned pretty quickly is there is an actual, a real skepticism in Germany about uh, privacy and electronic media, mm -hmm. which of course plays back into 50 years of the Stasi and the Third Reich using intelligence gathering, which by the way, six weeks after I got there, the news broke that we had allegedly been tapping Merkel's cell phone. So that was my opening shice storm. But hardly um, made me the guy to argue that everybody should, you know, get onto these social media sites. But, uh, but in any event, there was a lot of skepticism towards that. And much of the privacy um, uh, movement that we're seeing coming out of the EU in terms of its regulatory structure now that Google and Facebook and even Apple and Amazon are all dealing with, I uh, really kind of, you know, was, was generated from, from Germany. So it, it, it was a little bit different. And I, I, I probably, we probably weren't as effective on the pure social media side as, uh, as, as some of you were in other, uh, other places. I also think of Rufus Gifford, our colleague in Denmark, who used it to a fairly well and, mm -hmm. and brilliantly. Um, but I wanted to uh, give an example, uh, a little bit different example of using social media, which was uh, we were very, one of our big um, uh, priorities was to build support for and help get the TTIP trade agreement negotiated and, and, and approved ultimately, which unfortunately we came close, but not, not close enough. And, um, you know, I spent a lot of time with business leaders and, and with the, you know, the CEOs of German companies who are overwhelmingly in favor of this. But what I noticed was all they were doing was talking to each other, right? It was that sort of echo chamber. This is going to be great. This is going to be great. We need to do this, that, and the other thing. And so I actually pulled um, uh, about 40 people into the embassy, and it, it, senior level people, and uh, to have what I call building support for a trade agreement 101. One of my past experiences when I was in the Clinton White House is I ran the war room to get the Uruguay round of the gap through Congress, which created the WTO and uh, a big piece of that was, was running sort of a public campaign and, and, and generating the various pressure points up on Capitol Hill. And so uh, one of the first steps of that is for the CEOs of company to mobilize their employees, 
many of whom are probably against these trade agreements, but don't understand the extent to which their paycheck depends on international trade. And so, uh, so literally, uh, and, and by the way, through their internal social media and also just social media to customers, uh, suppliers, people that they deal with, uh, we, we actually had a session on how to better take advantage of these new tools to help broaden the grassroots support uh, for that trade agreement, which, uh, as I said, we ultimately weren't successful on it, but I thought that was, so it wasn't so much the embassy doing it, but trying to, the embassy trying to, you know, train, for lack of a better word, these uh, leaders uh, to do it within their networks uh, as well. And by the way, that did happen. I mean, so, uh, so and I thought that was kind of an interesting example. It is an interesting example. You know, that actually leads me to, to think about the fact that you're talking about trade and, and that is obviously one of the topics that, it, you know, you're, you're dealing with as an investor. I'm just curious, do you feel, Ambassador Emerson, that there's certain areas of uh, diplomacy, um, certain topics that you have to deal with as an ambassador that lend themselves more than others to using these different methods? Do you know what I mean? In terms of youth engagement or migration as an issue, which was a big issue when you were in Germany, or environmental sustainability. I'm just curious from your perspective, which topics well, lend themselves? Questionably with youth engagement. I mean, I think that's, in, in terms of the meeting people where they are, uh, that is, a, and now it doesn't, you still should do the going out there in the town halls at universities or even a few high schools or whatever. I mean, that's a good thing to do, but for sure with youth engagement, the, the area on immigration and, and, you know, I'm glad you brought that up because obviously, you know, I was, uh, had the uh, opportunity to be in Germany during the 2015, 2016 whole refugee crisis. And, and, you know, everybody just saw the impact on miracle, the rise of AFD, the rise of populism, in part as a reaction to the, uh, to the immigration crisis. And what we found was that um, Germany was actually doing a good job at trying to integrate uh, these new immigrants. And they were also being smart about it. They were spreading them out around the country and not allowing for the um, development of ghettos as we saw in places like Paris and Brussels where in fact there were some major terrorist attacks. And obviously this was a concern that a lot of Germans had. But what we found in moving around, when I say we, I also include my wife, Kimberly, and I know we're going to get to that broader topic. And I know we have an ambassadorial couple on the phone here as well, uh, in addition to Christy, who's an ambassadorial couple. But, but, the, but, but Kimberly, who is on the board of Human Rights Watch, spent a lot of time traveling around the country looking at some of these integration efforts and then she would often say, you ought to go see this one, you ought to go see that one. And then we would, we would do that. And the one thing we discovered was there were a lot of really interesting ideas that uh, NGOs uh, or just local organizations or local governmental bodies were putting together to try to integrate people that weren't known more broadly within the country. And there was a lot of reinventing of the wheel. So what we did, and this was in September of 2016, we put together at the embassy a, um, uh, and, and the wonderful uh, Assistant Secretary for Humanitarian, for Refugees all came uh, to uh, anchor this uh, with us, but it was effectively a best practices conference for a couple of days, uh, bringing some of these uh, folks together and then putting together a website and pushing out 
to not just all the participants, but people who were involved in this effort. It wasn't the German government doing it. It was the American embassy doing it. Uh, you know, hey, try this idea, try that idea. Here's what these folks are doing. And here's how to connect with one another. Uh, so that was um, sort of different than just, you know, kind of tweeting out what you're, what, you know, what's happening, uh, a way to use the, the social media and these new tools and technologies to uh, help uh, Germany do something that was not only in Germany's interest, but very much in our interest as we had, uh, you know, no interest in seeing Germany move back into a more uh, angry populist kind of dynamic, which is what was happening uh, during that uh, immigration crisis. Kathleen, can I follow on John's comment to that question as well about certain areas of diplomacy that lend themselves to these modern methods and simply offer the following. In Sweden, for me, the Arctic was exhibit A of that topic because American is an Arctic country, so is Sweden. But for most people, the Arctic is remote, it's distant, it's hard to kind of contextualize in terms of what is happening there impacting you in your own backyard. And what I was able to do was use social media and the YouTube platform to combine with someone who is also like me, not an Arctic scientist, who also like me is a parent and cares about the world that my child and his children will inherit uh, and, and their children. And we were able to be in, and, and, and this, this guy who's Sweden's leading actor, he's like the Tom Hanks of Sweden. His name is Felix Ernggren. He has a much bigger following than, than I ever um, would have. Uh, and I was able to combine my social media with him and travel to the Arctic with him and pull together several films on the changing Arctic. They were a runaway hit in Sweden and beyond to manifest how the Arctic is changing and explain in real world, practically understandable ways in word, but also pictorially what is happening there and how it impacts you in your own backyard. Ultimately, it caught the attention of President Obama. And when I was done after four years in Sweden, he brought me to the White House to serve as the focal point for a special effort on the Arctic in his last year of office. So the point I'm saying is there's a topic that really lent itself to these new platforms. Mm. You know, one thing that I'm really curious about um, is, is the issue of the, you know, the State Department institution as an institution being rather tradition bound and maybe not known for always risk taking. And I'm really curious, and maybe I'll start with Ambassador Kenny with this, given that you have you know, 30 years of experience working in that institution. And that, you know, what does it take to be creative and use these innovative methods while staying within sort of the institutional guardrails that the State Department usually has up? Thanks for that one, Kathleen. <laughs> it's not an easy topic. But as we all know, anybody's worked in any headquarters, you know, you want to make sure the field offices are doing what they're supposed to be doing, where they're supposed to be doing. And that tendency is therefore to put up pretty high guardrails. And of course, every time the one really not very common embassy or ambassador does something inappropriate with social media or publicly, <clears throat> it inspires more of those guardrails. My as an ambassador, and I think all of you on this call would agree, you send instructions from Washington, but your job is to interpret them in the way that best matches the situation at the time in the country you're in. That's why you're paid the big bucks, or the small bucks, as, as the case may be, to those of you who have private sector careers, but it's really the responsibility you have. How does this instruction play now? 
And there may be times when what you've been told from Washington is just going to be completely, you know, it's a blanket instruction to several embassies or every embassy. It's not going to work where you are. And sometimes you can go back and discuss that. You know, it, it, it may be if it's so sensitive, you might go back and say, I, sometimes otherwise you, you just deliver it in, in the way you see best. When I was in Ecuador, and I see, I think my good friend John Maestro is on this call, the Ecuadorians hated our Iraq war, hated it. They didn't like us much anyway. And Washington wanted the ambassador on TV every day talking about it. And every day we had a bigger demonstration in front of the embassy. So we started just kind of massaging that around the margins. You know, when they say, what has the ambassador done today? You know, if I said the word Iraq, we get you know, box checked. Um, in it doesn't matter where I say, you know, we're just going to find other ways to do this because we're not winning any friends. They're not voting with us in the Security Council. And moreover, they're trying to tear down my embassy. So this is not a good choice. But I also knew going back to argue it, wasn't going to go there. It's the same with a lot of the social media. Washington has this real desire to tell embassies what to tweet, what to put on their web page. And it misses the great ability of a local embassy and it's not just the ambassador, obviously, there's a team working this, to tailor a web page so that it's interesting and draws in people in the country, non-threatening. It's not the evil empire. It's a country with a lot to offer. And so this is where I think there's the, the, the tug and pull, and, and I understand both sides, but I always felt as an ambassador, it's your job to, to try to use all of these tools in a way that work in the country at that moment. Mm -hmm. I would give you an example. Let's assume you and the embassy have a great and creative plan going. And it's right now, or it's two weeks ago. You suddenly have the George Floyd death. You know, it's probably not a good moment for the ambassadorial bicycle trip across Sweden, which is a fabulous idea any other time. But, and this is where as the ambassador, and I know Mark well enough to know he would have said, time out. That's right. Bicycle trip another day. You know, it just, it, it's not right for the moment and the time, really in our own country, not in the host country. So I'll let others chime in, but. Well, I, I think that's a great point. And I do think again, and not to, you know, you always gotta be careful about, um, you know, focusing too much on a, on a, or, or a class of, uh, of ambassadors, but I do find, that I have also seen, and, and I try, I spend about a third of my time in Europe and Asia now. So I, I, I see this a fair amount and, and, and I'm friends with a number of the current ambassadors too, by the way. But I do see there's a insistence on coming from Washington on tweeting out exactly what you're supposed to tweet out. And, and I do think they lose something uh, in that and it sort of hurts the, um, you know, hurts from the standpoint of diplomacy. My example of, of sort of State Department and having to, you know, by the way, what you could have done is you could have just said, uh, got on TV and every day and said, I rock. And, exactly. And well, I was pretty close to true. doing that, John, to be fair. And if you ever go back and tell any of the many talented leaders of our nation from that time, I'll pretend I don't know any of you. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> what but Washington what didn't know was, didn't hurt him. When they, when the, uh, I, when I got a call from Christoph Hoiskin, the national security advisor uh, for the chancellor, who I had met once at this point, because I was only just a few weeks into it, saying, I'm going to send you a document. I trust uh, you will tell me it's a forgery, but uh, you need to know it has the chancellor's private personal cell phone on it. And I immediately was on the phone with Susan Rice, kind of talking through how we're going to uh, respond to that. 
uh, within a day, uh, I, I think a number of us ambassadors, and, and Mark, we're, I don't know if you were still at Post then, this would have been like in October of 2013. You may have, you may have, uh, uh, it, but I think we all got this instruction from the State Department, this cable that said, your instructions are to say, I'm sorry, I don't comment on intelligence, or we don't comment on intelligence matters in response to that. I knew that probably would have resulted in me be PNG'd if, uh, <laughs> if I'd taken that approach in Germany, where this was a massively emotional uh, response, public response. Literally, people, it, it, senior people with tears in their eyes talking about, you don't trust us anymore. So, I mean, it was huge. And so I completely ignored it. And, and what I did was threw myself into the arena, let people unload on me, reflect back that I understood. I never confirmed anything. You know, I'd, I would, you know, they, what are all those antennas on your embassy? Look, we're a communications organization, just like you, Mr. or Mrs., you know, news, news, you know, broadcaster. And, uh, you know, so you do that, but, but fundamentally let them know that you understood why this was such a serious issue and an important issue. And then at some point try to elevate the conversation to an area where you can actually get back and have a reasonable conversation about why it is important for our intelligence communities to work together. And, and the, um, so the point being, it, even a specific direct instruction, which probably worked fine for ambassadors who weren't in Germany, because they- Worked why, great why, in Bangkok. You know, <laughs> but, but in, you know, for me, that would have been an absolute disaster. Right. You know, it, it's interesting to hear you talk about working with the State Department. And one of the things that makes me realize, of course, is one of the differences between career and non-career ambassadors is that sometimes a non-career ambassador can have communication maybe with the White House in addition to the State Department, you know what I mean? Depending on the nature of the relationship with the president and whatever. And so maybe Ambassador Brzezinski, I wonder if you could sort of speak to this in your experience. Did you ever feel that sometimes maybe there was like a difference of instruction sometimes or in what you were being encouraged to do from sort of the White House and the State Department, you know? Absolutely, but not in a negative way. What I mean is this, I definitely received um, incentives and kind of positive messaging from my friends at the White House to kind of lean forward to do innovative things as an ambassador, whether messaging or events. And I would sometimes receive a little bit more restraint from the State Department um, about doing those things, given their visibility and so forth. It's just that, you know, I had been on the original Obama campaign team from the very beginning. So a number of people who I'd worked with from the very beginning of the campaign, Ben Rhodes, Dennis McDonough, Susan Rice, were high level White House officials with whom I stayed in extremely close touch after I went to Sweden. Why? Well, first of all, I really liked them as friends and just remained in touch with them just to share notes. But more importantly, because I got the message from the special assistant to the president for the European affairs at the NSC before going out that clearly, Mark, you know this, President Obama loves the Nordic countries, Sweden, that his values overlay perfectly with the values of the Nordics, gender equality, sustainability, immigrant assimilation, and generosity associated to that. And you should build that out. Why? Because there's never ever been a presidential visit to Stockholm in history. And President Obama has taken note of that. And so I would regularly message to the White House 
things that connected with the president's values, with the view that we were going to try to have him come to Stockholm. And two year, two and a half years after I started in Sweden, President Obama was wheels down in Stockholm. I'd asked for one hour uh, after the, um, the um, Snowden event occurred in Moscow, the president wasn't going to Moscow on his way to St. Petersburg. So he had a, some, some open space on his calendar in terms of traveling to St. Petersburg. And I said, please come to Stockholm for one hour. And I got a message um, when I was actually, uh, I'd taken my family on a summer vacation saying, Mark reported post immediately, the president's coming in two weeks and he's staying with you for two days fill out an interesting schedule. And so that was an awesome opportunity, but you know, also frenetic in terms of pulling that together. And so, but it was the diplomatic event that was the gift that kept on giving in terms of our relationship with the Swedes, in terms of everything concerning the Im immigrant crisis in Europe, concerning what John mentioned about TTIP, concerning the Arctic, concerning cooperation with NATO, commercial diplomacy and so forth. It was a great event from which to build in the future. And that was all part of a, basically a strategy to get that to happen. Um, so I definitely did that. It was hugely beneficial. Would every email I sent to Dennis McDonough been something that, you know, the assistant secretary for Europe would have loved it had I sent, but no, but I had a personal existing relationship, which I continued to the benefit of the goals that I had set, been set out for me by my bosses at the State Department. Right, that makes Super sense. <laughs> I, I think, um, I mean, those are great examples. Uh, and uh, the, the only thing is, I remember Toria Newland, who was uh, uh, the Assistant Secretary during the time I served, she said, when, when she first met with the uh, non-career ambassador, she said, look, I know a number of you have stronger relationships with different people in the White House than I do just don't surprise me. So if I got the Dennis McDonough email back, I would have forwarded it to Toria just to keep her in the loop. And I'm sure you did the same thing. But, but it's hugely, hugely valuable uh, to have these relationships. And it's not just even uh, within the White House, but it's when, within people uh, you have in the administration. I had a little bit of a different Obama to Germany story than Mark had, where he really wanted to come there and that was Angela Merkel really wanted him to come to the Hanover Fair. Germany is sort of the epicenter of these industrial fairs. And if you just look at a map of Europe, you can see historically why that's the case. It was the crossroads. Mm -hmm. and, um, and the Hanover Fair is their big industrial fair. And uh, they wanted United States to be the, it, it, there's always a nation who's sort of the sponsor, to be the sponsor. And of course, as part of that, the you know, head of government, head of state has to come. And so uh, this was the last thing in the world that Barack Obama wanted to do. He was not a big fan of these kinds of things. But guess who Secretary of Commerce was? Penny Pritzker. So I didn't even bother working the White House. I just worked Penny, who, of course, is extremely close to the president. She loved the idea. And that's how, <laughs> that's how we got. It wasn't me getting it done. Believe me, it was Penny getting it done. But that's how we got that particular visit done. And then another uh, experience where the the relationships from those of us who maybe grew up in politics and government uh, in different, uh, in, in, as opposed to being, you know, career foreign service officers can help. When I got to Germany, one of the uh, kind of complaints that I heard was that the, the Department of Treasury would come to Germany, have their meetings, and they kind of bypass the State Department. 
We just find out like at the last minute that the secretary was coming, so on and so forth. Well, it turns out the new Secretary of Treasury was Jack Lew, whose office was across from mine in the old EOB in 1993 in the Clinton, when we were both kids in the Clinton White House. And, and so, you know, I have the Secretary of Treasury who, you know, literally picked up the phone, called me. My nickname is Emmo. Emmo, I'm coming to Germany. And we had an entirely different brought him into the embassy, got him to brief everybody, made sure we got the key embassy people, not just the treasury people who were traveling with him in the meetings that they needed to be in. And there, and there wasn't even an issue. Now, Jack Lew's personality as such, he probably would have done that anyway. He, his previous job was he'd been chief of staff and then OMB before that. Um, but, um, and, and so he gets the importance of pulling everybody together. But just that little personal relationship, I think that we tend to build help, just as the career folks have personal relationships with people who are serving in other countries or in their, you know, serving at senior levels there or with uh, foreign officials who they've met at conferences over the years and so on and so forth. So we can kind of blend those two together. It's, I think, very helpful. Yeah, I, I, I would add, I mean, obviously, I don't have the ability, never have, to get any president of the United States on the phone. I regret that because there's much I would have loved to have shared they wouldn't have cared. <laughs> but nonetheless, uh, you know, I, I always tell ambassadors, boy, it's true, when you do your consultations around all the agencies, you're making friends. Yeah. Because, you know, you might not be able to get the Secretary of Treasury on the phone. You might, if it's important enough. But you sure want to have people at other agencies that you can pick up the phone to include the military commands. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. So U.S. Southern Command Absolutely. in Ecuador and the U.S. Pacific Command. You know, so you want to be able, as you meet these people, go along. You're, you're doing consultations, but you're making friends so that you can, if not the Secretary of Treasury, you can get a senior Treasury official on the phone, maybe the Secretary if it's important enough, or the commander of whatever the regional command is, or, you know, somebody at the CIA if you've got a problem, whatever. You want to, you know, build those networks. If you come in with them, you're on campaigns together. You got a leg up. If you didn't, you know, you got that opportunity before you had to post. Take it. True. You know, in the interest of time, I, I want to I want to get something in that Ambassador Emerson you mentioned earlier, and you said we'd get back to it. And I want to get back to it, and that is the issue of um, sort of in modern diplomacy, the role of an ambassador spouse, because that is something that again, you know, has, it has evolved over time. But I think some people would say that role has not evolved enough. And I think all three of you have really interesting perspectives on this. So I'd love to hear your thoughts on how that role factors into modern diplomacy. Well, Mark, why don't you go with that? Because you were, you were sort of yeah, a leader. Absolutely. I cannot emphasize enough on this program what a powerful idea generator and idea you know, executor my wife was at Post. She was the gift that kept on giving, especially in terms of public diplomacy and reaching out, as I talked about in the beginning, to stakeholders who previously were not on the quote embassy list in terms of who to reach out to. Like for example, entrepreneurs, the tech innovation community and the like. Um, and she did that artfully and she was able to generate a community that filled our embassy with ideas and was able to kind of disseminate the values of the United States in an incredible way. But I also picked up that there was quite frankly a little bit of, of 
kind of ambivalence or even resistance to having or to her having kind of a proactive role. So one of the things that, that as she assimilated into the embassy community that, that, that she was able to trigger was she got a contract between herself and L, which of course is the legal department of the State Department, um, called a gratuitous services contract in which she had in a contract framed very carefully the areas of public diplomacy, like the fin outreach to the FinTech community, gender equality stakeholders, and the like, um, and that she would be part of the public diplomacy effort of the embassy in a fulsome matter, um, um, manner. And um, she signed that contract and the head of L signed that contract so that if there was any question regarding her role going forward, there was something on paper that clearly defined that this was a goal for the embassy for her to be part of. And you know what? It was a great thing to have to both advance her goals, but also to protect her, quite frankly, against those who didn't necessarily want her to have as fulsome a role, to be quite frankly frank about it. I think this is a very important part of the diplomatic equation going forward to not maximize the utility of the family of an ambassador. As I said, my spouse was a powerful force, but I brought every single member of my family to the embassy to do messaging. My late father, he gave two speeches in Sweden when I was ambassador, poor guy. Um, I uh, got my sister Mika, who's a journalist on MSNBC to come over uh, with her husband to do stuff. My brother, who's a Republican, got recruited into doing all kinds of stuff. The point is, is that I was able, you reach to all the resources you can possibly have as ambassador to make this a success for the president and the American interest. Um, because they are the vehicles for messaging. And that's at the opportunity more than in any, any other way with a spouse. Does anybody else have any thoughts about spouses? <laughs> I'm gonna chime in for John does, so I know John has. But you know, I think I, I agree very much that one of the issues the State Department and the US government, frankly, has never addressed very well is the issue of spouses, partners, mm -hmm. family members. I also can see why I'm not a lawyer, but the, you know, spouses, partners, significant others, family members come in all shapes and sizes. My dad was a great guy. Nobody would come to see him speak on anything. So Mark obviously, you know, has a, has a family that will draw a crowd. Jerry Kenny would draw his daughter and that would be about it. But, uh, you know, you, it's complicated. And then there's some people who have no family opposed or single or geographically single. So I think if I were sitting at the State Department, I would actually have a working group looking at how do we do this? I agree. How do we, yeah. by the way, there are also some spouses and partners who, who want to use this as an opportunity to relax and practice yoga and read and, you know, be supportive as needed, but, but don't have an interest or their skill set matches nothing in the country to which they're assigned. They don't speak the local language, you know, their English is not widely used, whatever. So I think it's incredibly difficult but I think we have way past the era when we should do this. And we should look at what framework you put around it. So the spouse, partner, and ambassador is protected. Nobody at the embassy is saying, wait a minute, the US government sent me here to do this. Why is Christy Kenny's husband now doing it? Or, you know, we're still, you know, we're spending US government resources for someone who's not here on the US government dollar. 
why am I driving the ambassador's spouse to an outreach event or preparing talking points? So it has to really protect everyone, but I do think it's way past time. And, and I'll jump off my soapbox because I don't have the answer, but I think it is way past time we did something about it. Well, I, and thank you for that. I certainly agree with it. One of the final things we did was Meridian hosted a conference along with Sunnylands uh, and had about 10 of us who were, or no, no, probably about six or seven of us who are ambassadorial couples come to talk about how the, and, and, and you know, Nancy McElhaney was there and she was running FSI at the time, how uh, they can better train non-career ambassadors and just to get our, and the whole thing very quickly evolved into two days on this precise topic. topic. And uh, Pat Kennedy was there and he actually did come up with an idea of some sort of, and, and you're absolutely right, Christy. I mean, the point was made, you know, one size does not fit all in terms of these circumstances, but he came up with maybe there's a sort of, I don't know if it's a contract, an employment or some sort of document that would uh, do the protection. Of course, then we had changed in administration and uh, sadly those wonderful career ambassadors also, I believe, have retired. But um, I, I mean, my similar situation was similar to Mark's and that, you know, Kimberly, and it was interesting to hear your topics because Kimberly also took a lead in uh, reaching out to the tech community, particularly female entrepreneurs. She ended up hosting around Germany uh, roundtables with female entrepreneurs. Uh, and she, you know, one thing that is important in Berlin is art and the art community. And she really reached out and built a profile and brought the embassy into that world. And then the third thing, of course, you have Berlin Ala, the Berlin Film Festival, where typically the embassy would have a little lunch on, you know, you know, Saturday of, the, of that festival. We ended up putting together what became one of the iconic events at the embassy, bringing people into, not at the residence, but at the embassy um, during that period of time. Now, part of the advantage she brought to the table was Number one, she'd worked in the film industry, and number two, we're from LA, and so we would constantly get calls from friends. So and so's coming in; they're filming this movie, or you know, from friends who were coming. So we were able to get uh, an attractive audience together that brought in a lot of the folks who are attending Ger uh, Berlin Ali, and particularly the Germans uh, who are excited to meet, you know, actor X, Y, or Z. And then, but the, the second piece of it was um, uh, Kimberly had worked at USIA when uh, I was, you know, in the Clinton White House for four years. And one of the people she worked with was Michelle Logston, who at least for our last year and a half was our cultural minister. So to, to hook up together and work together on issues of public diplomacy was just a piece of cake and natural. But the frustration uh, initially, what we found, and we had five consulates, and as consuls general would discover that, you know, they always wanted you know, the ambassador out, they always wanted the, the ambassador's spouse to come after a while, and they discovered that she actually was good at this stuff. Um, but then you get a new one, you know, every three years, everybody changes, and then you'd have to sort of, so you sort of felt like you were, and we didn't want to push it. But I think the recognition is this, with some ambassadorial spouses. They are like a first lady or a first man in the sense that the public wants to see them. They, they, are, they have a level of visibility. And it's not like they're going to go, even if they have the background and capability of doing it, they know it's not their job to go and negotiate foreign policy. But there's so many areas where 
their anchoring an event is just going to bring more people in the room and more attention. And I'll tell you what else, Kimberly was way better on social media than I was and still is uh, very, very known and popular in Germany where we have an apartment and she's continued with a lot of her activities. So I, it, now we were, fortunately we had the resources, we could hire an assistant for her who would, but that was our employee who would come to my weekly scheduling meetings and be there along with Kimberly. So we would, yeah, you know, I, I mean, everybody sort of knew what everybody else was doing and talk about options and opportunities. But I, I do think that, um, you know, whether it's a, the equivalent of a, a first lady sort of staffing or office, I'm not saying you get five people, but at least one person or half a person that with a spouse who is capable and interested in doing that kind of thing uh, can help uh, integrate them more into the public. And I think it's really is about public diplomacy into the public diplomacy efforts of, of the embassy makes a whole lot of sense. Can I say one last thing here, Kathleen? <coughs> uh, and that is this, when it comes to spouses, it's important, whether it's for the sake of the family or the face, sake of people that you engage with, to quote, own it. If an ambassador who's been confirmed has a highly active, professionally involved spouse, you cannot legitimately expect that spouse to stand still for four years at some foreign post. That's not reasonable in the modern times. Um, and the opportunity is, instead of the spouse being miserable, to mobilize that spouse as appropriate and as they want to be mobilized to advance the American interest. There is a way of doing that, and you see that in representational roles across our great country, um, as John was intimating, look at the first ladies or first men of spouse, of, of governor spouses or you know, uh, Michelle Obama or Rosalind Carter or, you know, um, and so uh, just in terms of my own experience, these are incredible opportunities, but I have to be also very frank. There, there are roles that a great spouse is interested and motivated to do and will deliver like none other to advance the American interest. And then there are roles that they'll, they'll be less interested in, just like you or I or anyone else. Um, in the case of me in Sweden, speaking very frankly, um, my wife was a highly active uh, professional in the tech community. Um, and when we first got to Sweden, um, uh, some roles were proposed that made no sense in terms of her professional background. Um, and what we were able to develop was a role that really advanced the tippy top commercial interests and strategic interests that we had in terms of public diplomacy. Um, and I was lucky that she was there, but I also was lucky that I had, I had a staff that fully embraced her role. And I've seen, and I've heard just, you know, among the ambassadorial core um, experiences that other spouses had that were less than positive. And I think that's a, that's a missed opportunity. 
we're pretty much at the end of time, but we had one person who sent in questions ahead of this uh, forum. So I really want to try to get one question in from that audience member. And this is uh, Sabrina Newton, who's a master's degree candidate at SICE. And uh, one of the questions she asked, and I put this out to all of you, um, is that, that the Foreign Service is a unique uh, profession. And what, would, what are some of the skills that you have found the most important? Um, so either Ambassador Kenny, from your perspective, being a Foreign Service officer, or Ambassador Brzezinski and Emerson, your perspective working with Foreign Service officers. For somebody at SICE who might be thinking about going in this career, what are some of the skills that you found to be most important for them? Let me start. Let me also say, um, if you're interested in the career, this is one place the State Department webpage is great. If you go on the State Department webpage careers section, there's so much on the Foreign Service and it lists, I think, 10 or 11 qualities that are considered really effective. So lots more information out there. But I would cite two as, as really important. One is adaptable mm -hmm. service officer. And by the way, I include in that my political appointee friends who come out to embassies as best. Situations change. No country stays the same, including our own. And if you're in another country, that changes. And if you're in the foreign service, you can be like me and be in Ecuador and be sent to Philippines for your next assignment and, and learn really fast. Mm -hmm. So adaptable. And the second is there is no success as a foreign service officer without good communication skills. Writing and speaking, you won't succeed if you can't do both of those. My, just to jump in and offer my response, looking forward, flexibility. Hierarchies are breaking down. Conventional and traditional relationships, whether between countries or between peoples or between men and women, between races, religions, are changing. We live at a dynamic moment and there are a number of technologies and reasons it will get more dynamic. The diplomat and the leader that are able to get in front of those changes and to begin to position the American embassy or the American people to be able to pivot and move quickly when the time is right two, four, ten years ahead will be the best asset that any ambassador or president can have. Um, but that requires intellectual flexibility that things and conventions are changing. Well said. And, and I would, uh, great, great points. I would, all what I would add to that is just to say, and you gotta be a great listener and not, mm -hmm. I mean, really actively listen. That both helps in terms of managing mm -hmm. uh, the staff. I, I think that um, typically if you move into uh, an area that somebody disagrees with, if they feel that you actually took the time to listen to them, have their opinion, they're more likely to get on board, even if they ultimately disagree with the decision. Uh, they understand the rationale for it and why you're doing it. Uh, and then obviously in terms of the general, the general public, that allows you to have sort of the nuanced flexibility and adaptability changes that you that you need and and so i would you know particularly when you start and you start getting out and doing press and meeting people and whatever you often get the question what's the most important quality for an ambassador to have i would always start with that until people started getting snarky after the tapping the merkel cell phone <laughs> i guess you're doing a lot of that <laughs>
Well, I wish we could keep going because I think that this conversation could go on for a long time, but I can see by our clock that it's, uh, it's 2.05 and we probably have to wrap up. And I just thank all of you, Master Brzezinski and Master Kenny and Master Emerson for giving so much time to this conversation. It was really, it was incredibly valuable and useful. And I just really thank you for all your, your insights and your comments and having such a great discussion. Thank you so thank much. Thank you. And thanks to everybody. John and Mark, it was a pleasure. Oh, absolutely. Thank you. Let us know if you come to California. <laughs> Likewise, I'm sitting here in Washington, ready to see y'all. Welcome to Northeast Harbor, Maine. I like that one a lot. All right, thank you all. Bye -bye.